Um, there's less certainty with engineering. I love uh, to know what I need to build and then use my engineering hat to go break it down, look up the right tutorials. Like that's the part I usually love the most about hackathons because it's so certain. Uh, this is an uncertain path. You're basically talking to people, hoping to find something. And it always works, but you always feel like, is it going to be a good use of my time? I don't really know what I'm going to get. It feels kind of amorphous. And for things like that, I think design thinking is something that I've, I've kind of read about design thinking and, and I've used it extensively in basically everything I do. And it's been really helpful. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hello everyone, this is Guang. Quick update before we get started. It's been almost a year since our first episode, and it's been really rewarding talking to interesting experts on topics that we really care about, and being able to bring those conversations to you, our listeners. As you know, and as we tell our guests in every episode, we are complete noobs at this podcasting. But as we get better and look into the second year, in addition to bringing on more experts in infrastructure engineering, we're really excited about expanding the range of conversations by talking to people who started out in engineering just like us and have over time accumulated deep expertise in a specific area in tech whether that's becoming a bootstrapped indie hacker, starting a company, transitioning into product management, or getting into venture capital and Android investing. Through these conversations, we hope to bring you practices and mental models that make these people really good at what they do. We will explore what different path being an engineer can lead to. And lastly, of course, stories of misadventures they've had along the way. With that, the guest of this episode is Ashwin Kumar. Ashwin is a startup partnership lead at Stripe. From web development to co-founding a YC startup to deep learning, Ashwin has a knack for picking up new skills extremely quickly. In this episode, we chat about the methods he employed to successfully make these transitions, learnings and tips from winning 30 plus hackathons in a row and what engineers can gain from better storytelling. I've known Ashwin for years, and it was super fun catching up with him. So please enjoy this episode with Ashwin Kumar. So Ashwin, welcome to the show, man. Hey, awesome. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, so Ashwin, you, you and I have known each other for almost three years now, and we're still friends. Can I just say how impressed I am by how much patience you have? So, you know, please, please keep up the good work. Is that the, uh, is that the reason you invited me to the show to celebrate the fact that I survived three years? Didn't, didn't think about it, but I should really mark it on my calendar, the, uh, the three-year anniversary. Well, Guang must really like you because he doesn't say nice things to me. <laughs> uh, uh, I digress. I digress. Uh. Um, okay, so I was on uh, LinkedIn stalking you, as friends do. 
And、uh, you have a pretty unique background.、Um, you started out doing investment banking, and then you co-founded a YC-funded startup, and then you worked on ML at a hardware company. That's where we actually met.、Uh, to now, you're leading startup partnerships at Stripe.、Um, this is a pretty exotic career path.、Uh, tell us about some of the highlights. Yeah.、Um... I'll just kind of walk you through, and I think it's gonna it's gonna give you an idea of of my thought process. So I studied finance, and I and I did investment banking mostly because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and that's I felt like the the kind of safe thing to do, where you, you get into it and there's a track and you know pays well and all that kind of stuff. But as most bankers, I, I kind of hated myself after a couple of years and really was looking for what what's the next move here.、Uh, and this is where I actually got into coding. So I never studied CS in school.、Mm-hmm. And at that time, in 2014, these coding boot camps were starting up, right? Like Dev Boot Camp, and now everybody knows of them. But at that time, Dev Boot Camp had just kind of started. Hack Reactor had started, and I heard about these, and I was like, okay, maybe this is where I want to go. Maybe I want to start trying to do software. So I did this Code Academy class while I was still working at my job, and I just fell in love. I was like addicted to it. Couldn't wait to get back home to keep doing Code Academy and kind of finish through. Through the path, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Like I'm, I'm so hooked on this thing, which happens to be a career、uh, that you can get into, and it also enables me to build my own products, which has always been kind of a dream for mine. So, so I did this boot, I quit my job, did did this boot camp, which was a huge risk back then because you just didn't. They had no. It's not like Lambda School now, where it's kind of clear that there's outcomes, right? It's or maybe not. I don't know about that, but like it's,、uh, it was a risk, but. The rest is history. Yeah. Did, did you、uh, like tell your iBanking buddies, being like, "Yo,、uh, check out or guess what I'm doing"? Like, how how did they react to?、Uh... I remember telling my like going and quitting my job,、uh, and and telling my boss like, "Hey, I'm gonna quit so I can go do this like coding bootcamp thing." And he, <laughs> you know, he was like very confused as as to what was going on. Uh, but he, you know, wished me luck and probably thought I was crazy, and I probably was a little bit. I felt myself like, "What am I doing? This is such a huge risk." At the time, I thought I felt it was right. Looking back, like it really wasn't that big of a risk、uh, to try this out. But you know what's interesting, and and with soft with investment banking, as much as people like to hate on it and finance, part of the job is doing financial modeling and and using Excel. And Excel, if you think about it, is really kind of a, a very It's it's there's a, it has a lot of paradigms of programming in it where you really are using logic to kind of set these things up and that was the part of the job I really loved like creating these really fancy financial models and and practically coding actually is what you're doing in a, in a very like, different use case but、uh, but yeah anyway I told him like hey this is what I'm doing I love doing the financial modeling I'm going to quit and I'm going to go do this boot camp he thought it was crazy but、uh, but you know I went. So I did the I did the boot camp right,、uh, and then I became an engineer. I actually it worked. I thought there was no way that you could do this nine week <laughs> program and then become a web developer,、uh, but I did. And then I got a job as a web developer for a year. Got a little bit restless and felt naively that I know enough about software that I can now build my own startup.、Uh, and I just quit my job and took the leap without an idea, without a co founder,、uh, thinking that I was good enough of an engineer to, to pull that off. And I wasn't, but. Uh, I did find a co-founder, and I did come up with an idea, and eventually we got into Y Combinator. But that's、um, that was my path into startups. Nice, nice, nice. And then、uh, what happened after that? 
We went through YC, uh, and I'm happy to talk about that. That was that was a wild experience. Uh, but we went through YC. We we raised money. Ultimately, company ended up closing down as most startups do. But I learned through that company how to do data science as a as a kind of ad hoc thing. We needed to do that for the product that we were building. And so afterwards, I joined Insight, where uh, you know both of you gone through, and then I transfer that into to being a machine learning engineer at Mythic, which is where I met Guang. So it was kind of a everything, each of the steps directly was connected to something else that came right before that. Uh, and soon after that, now I've started working at Stripe because I really do love software and I really do love startups. And the job that I'm doing at Stripe is helping startup founders and partnering with VC firms and partnering with accelerators to help startups succeed on Stripe. But in general, go faster, raise their next round and, and succeed. And so it's uh, it's kind of a dream job. Nice, nice. I feel like the obvious question is kind of like, how did you go about picking up new skills um, with each transition? Because they were all so different. But even before that, how did you get over sort of the mental block, if you will, of having to learn something completely different that's completely out of your comfort zone? How, how do you think about that? It's really hard. I'm not someone who it comes naturally to. I feel like it was, I had to do it because I had to do it. So it all started with learning to code during that boot camp, right? Coding, if you've never done it in school or in other capacity, learning software is a very daunting thing. It, it, it's not something you can just do as a hobby. And I know a lot of people who think it is and they try and they completely <laughs> give up, right? It's, there's so many different things you have to learn in order to, to kind of, do well at the job. And the boot camp really helped me get that confidence. If I can learn this, right? If I can learn, uh, I remember what, what was really interesting is they break things down, right? I remember the first time that I really had an aha moment was when I made my first, I learned how to make a get request. That was like one of the, the, the classes, right? And I, and I did that and I was like, this is incredible. I can talk to the internet now. Uh, and then the next day we made a post request and I don't know why, but my, a light bulb went off in my head, like, now I can create something like, and I can actually write something and create something that's going to change something somewhere. And that was this, this, uh, little kernel of interest that got me just to learn the next thing. Like, okay, if I can do that, why don't I do some, make an application or website where I can do both, you know, where I can actually have access to do both. And if I can do that, why don't I kind of level that up? And I feel like the way I learned the skills is get into that aha moment as fast as you can. And, then kind of work backwards and figure out, okay, now, now that I'm excited about this thing, what are the, what are the component pieces of it and how can I level it up to the next, the next level? So that, that's kind of been my MO the whole time. Interesting. Like, so it was, would it be fair to say it was more about the curriculum? Like for, for me, for Insight, part of it was actually other people pushing me to do stuff where I thought having a cohort of uh, other people like-minded also trying to get through like the similar struggles. Like for me, that was huge. Um, I think yeah. just the moral support and then knowing that we're all sort of suffering through the, the same thing. But I guess to your point though, like having the structure to be able to, I guess, tackle those things sort of um, stepwise so yeah. that you're not just getting stuck. I guess well, so the, the big thing I learned from that boot camp, which I've actually now used going forward to learn anything is, first of all, learning how to learn is, is the thing that a lot of us can use some help with. And if you can learn the, the structure of how you learn something new, that's the meta learning. That's the skill that really helps. And that means you can learn anything. Right. And so the confidence that I learned from the coding boot camp was it, for me, what really helps me is if I want to learn something, 
do it the, like dive in to something it, like drown in it right and so in this example what we did in the boot camp was we just copy and pasted a crud app like we 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 just kind of the assignment the very first day assignment was go to stack overflow go to some tutorials and just like get something to work don't even know what's going on and get it so if you press the button something will happen that was it right and copying and pasting have zero idea what's happening but we got the button to work and then you get excited like whoa what just i just made that thing work now let me go back and start to go to the, like break it down into the basics. Like what exactly went down, right? I feel like a lot of people do a bottoms up, which is very natural. And that's what we learn in school is like day one is how does a computer work? And day two is like, you know, you kind of build yourself up. But for me, I learned that it's much better to just jump, get confused, get exposed to all the different terms or all the different mind maps of the vocabulary. So that when you actually do go bottoms up, you kind of remember, ah, this makes sense. This is something I actually ran across and now I actually know what it means. And so I've used that for everything. When I started my company, it was the same thing. You just kind of incorporate, when you start a company, it's no one knows how to start a company. I think there's this like uh, feeling that you're an entrepreneur, like that's your profession or you studied it in school or something, but absolutely nobody knows. Like how do you get insurance, health insurance for yourself? How do you incorporate, how do you do any of these things that means starting a company? And it's the same thing. It, a lot of times you just have to kind of jump into it and then then you can work backwards on the things that you think need to be need to be learned a bit more deeply that's really cool that now that i think about it yeah it's it's almost like you did three boot camps for transitioning into three different things right into coding that's the dev boot camp and then into building your own startup that's yc and then yeah. into ml that's uh insight um what was the hardest one <laughs> um they were all they were all hard in different ways, right? I, I think the the confidence I got from each of them is the thing that allowed me to do the next one. So, like learning to code when you've never done it professionally or, or learned in school, that is an and seeing that actually that I can make something from it is gave me the confidence that maybe I can start a company. And doing that, not knowing anything about how to start a company, and actually going through the motions, getting into YC, actually doing it gave me the confidence that I can learn something completely new, which I've never come across before. And then you get into, into deep learning, which is a lot of math, actually. It's like, it's not, it's, it's very much mathematical than it is kind of web development. That's not, doesn't really transfer over, right? And so relearning calculus and derivatives and understanding how all that works. I think I just was able to be numb to the fact that I didn't know the thing. I knew that I can know the thing. And so it's just a matter of time and finding the right resources. And so, I think they were all difficult. Uh, and I actually feel like if you're not doing that, you may not be going in the right direction. I, I, I really do feel that it's when you're out of that comfort zone, you're probably are going towards something that is going to lead into something bigger, like lead into something that's more interesting or ambitious or meaningful to you. You're going to have to face some kind of discomfort. And so now I see it as almost like a good signal. I guess there's sort of a sweet zone, right? Like if it's too much, you know, in the comfort zone, then you're not learning as much. But I think if it's too far out, it just seems so daunting that it almost becomes discouraging. Is that, would you say that's fair? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so what you do is if it's so far, if it feels like so far out of your reach, you have to break it down. I actually think this is why engineers, you know, what, what we, in software engineering, a lot of what we do is we take a big thing and then break it into small pieces and then build ourselves up, Right. Like that is all of software. We, it's all about you have something you want to solve and how do you uh, make it into different pieces? And you can even go all the way down into a Jira ticket, right? But it's like, <laughs> it's, it's literally, 
like tiny little pieces, Lego blocks that then build up to something bigger. And so if you do the same thing with anything you're learning where it's, you know, I need to start a company or I want to start a company, that's a big daunting thing. But if the very first step is how do I figure out what, how, what people want, right? Okay, well, maybe I can read a book on user research. I've never done user research before, but I'll read, I'll find the best book that people recommend, just read it and then just go do tenant user interviews. That's, that would be the first kind of step to that. And I, I think that engineers, we, we have this in our mentality, which is great, where you can learn anything new just by breaking it down into smaller pieces and then starting. And the mem- momentum will kind of pick it up from there. It's pretty neat that uh, <clears throat> you mentioned like learning to learn as a skill. You've obviously, I mean, it's, it's obvious from your career that you're really good at it, no, seeing that you've done it so many times. Uh, how do you decide what to learn, though? I want like to pause you, I, and rephrase that. I, I don't think I'm good at it because I've done it so many times. I think I've done it so many times, so I'm good at it. Uh, yes. Smooth, well, smooth. well said. Well said. Uh, yeah. But how, how do you decide what to learn, then? So I can't... I'm not someone who can kind of just academically learn something like, hey, I want to learn the history of Greece. And so <laughs> I, I've tried things like that where I really want to learn philosophy, so I'm going to sit down and try to do it, and it just doesn't work. For me, it has to be an external pressure of some sort where it's, mm. I need to learn this thing in order to do something else. Mm. <laughs> like, I need to learn this thing uh, in order to solve a problem that's helping me go towards something I care about. And so the best way is to just learn the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, something that I've done a lot in my life are, are hackathons. Uh, and I can go into a lot of detail on hackathons, but the thing that I really love about them is they are kind of an external force for you to learn something in a very quick way. Mm-hmm. And that has always been the most motivating thing for me uh, mm-hmm. to learn something new. That's cool. Like ha- hackathons is something that we definitely want to get into. I'm going to bookmark that here just so that we, we come back to it. Uh, I want to dig deeper on that part though. Uh, like you've gone from one role to another, which has been different, in my opinion, very different. And it's pretty impressive. Uh, what I feel through personal experience and through experiences of many of the people I know, there is usually an inertia to change once you learn something and get good at it, because then you start, like you mentioned that aha moment, and you start thinking, oh, I can do more of this now. And one track people choose usually is go deep in that one domain, and a little wide, but in that same neighborhood. And any extreme change, there is a little bit of inertia to that. And that inertia is for a few reasons, like skill sets is one part, which you mentioned that one can learn with that confidence and one can break things down. The other is also appetite for risk, because now you're going from one thing to another, which is uh, different and unknown many times, at least in your case. How have you navigated that part when you go from one to the other? And uh, that's a new domain, which you probably know less about than the one before. How do you manage risk there? Well, I think so. risk is an interesting word. Like, I feel like a lot of people use that word, but it's what, what exactly there's two things you need to learn or to think about about risk. One is what is the actual risk? People say something is risky. Joining a startup is risky. So it's mm-hmm. specifically, what is the risk? Is the risk that you're going to... Uh, the opportunity cost of like, you could have spent that time somewhere else where you would have made more money. And because the, the startup went out of business, that opportunity cost is the risk and you can quantify that. Or is it, uh, I'm not sure, but like there, there's just like, so it, you have to be very specific on what risk means to you. Yeah. So the, and then the other part of risk is, you know, in finance and, and basically in, in anything, risk is always associated with the reward. 
Uh, and so <laughs> what you see is this combined, right? And so people a lot of times focus on that risk part, but you, if you're going to focus on the risk, you have to also think about what is the reward if you're going to take that risk. Mm-hmm. If that reward is meaningful enough to you, then risk takes a different form. Then you think of it like, okay, well, that is part of the game, right? There, that just kind of something I have to deal with. Is the reward good enough for it to, to deal with that? And so for me, like every risk I've taken is not because I'm a risky person. It's more like I really want this reward. Uh, am I willing to put up with the risk? Okay, I guess it's not that big of a risk. And I'll give you an example. Like when I left to start my company, so I became a web developer for a year. Thought I was good enough to start a company. Uh, I, I started a company, right? And at the time, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the biggest risk in the world, right? I am going to, uh, something as bad is going to happen. I'm going to, like, not, the company won't work out. I won't have an idea. And then what exactly? I Maybe I was scared that I would never get a job again. I don't, you know, looking back, I'm almost laughable because I, I, there was really not much of a risk. But uh, the reward that I saw was so captivating for me that I could run my own business. I could create something that millions of people can potentially use. I could go on this adventure that I would regret if I never went on. And that reward just is so obviously bigger than the kind of vague risks that I came up with that it, it, it just seems, it seems very clear, right? So I feel like focusing on the reward and being very clear on why you want to do the thing can, can put the risk in a different, in a different light. Um, just to make myself uh, feel like I didn't waste the whole semester in this uh, investment class back in grad school. Like, I remember this concept of a Pareto curve where uh, you're thinking about risk and then you're thinking about the reward. And then basically for the same amount of risk, like what, like which, I guess, stocks or, you know, whatever, have the highest return. So I think maybe that's like a very uh, basic idea here. But I think yeah, like doing the calculation there, but then once you are on that Pareto curve, then yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool the way you think about it. It's like, yeah, like the more risk then necessarily that there will be uh, more rewards. Yeah, or it's just just be very, you can quantify it in, in a lot of ways. I think if you think about something as risky, the first thing you should ask yourself is, if I was to put that into numbers, what the, the negative outcome would be, how would I go about doing that? And it's a good exercise either way, because then you'll think about what is it that I'm actually defining as risky here. Uh, if it's salary, it's usually something about money people feel is risky, then then try to figure out what what are you actually risking? Like, what, what is it? And then if you look at that number and you're like, wait, that's actually not that bad uh, at, in the worst case scenario, I think it'll help you get over that risk in a way where you feel like it's 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 worth trying anyway. And it's interesting, right? Like for the startup, so I ended up not, the startup didn't end up working out. And when I left my job as a web developer, I thought this would be it. Like if I don't get the startup to work, I would have spent however many years doing this company in which time I wasn't working as an engineer, meaning that I have no option. I have no other way to get back as a job as an engineer. And it ended up being, I leapfrogged the title that I would have gotten as if I just stayed there for those three years and became an engineer because I was able to talk about the story, how I built my own product and how we had to do actual production issues. And that leapfrogged me in terms of title. And so it was like, obviously, I didn't know that at the time, right? Uh, but it was something that I, uh, that was interesting, like looking back on it. And that gave me more confidence that maybe just, just believe that you can keep going. That's pretty neat. So uh, in terms of the rewards that you mentioned, I have one last question, and then we want to jump to hackathons. Uh, Considering the variety of experiences you got through starting a startup, working as an ML engineer, and now you're working at Stripe, uh, 
how do these different experiences now help you in your current role? Uh, you know, so the current role right now is I'm, I'm basically helping startup founders all the time and startup founders. So being a startup founder is being, is very essential to this role because I can empathize exactly with the issues that they're dealing with. And so when I talk to them, I say, here's maybe a product that we have a Stripe that could actually make you go faster or make it better for your next pitch to investors. If you incorporate it, I, I know it's not salesy. It's me. It's me talking to you as if I were in your shoes, this would actually be something useful for you. So th that's one huge thing. Uh, the other thing is just this, this feeling of building and, and growing something. So Stripe is a company that's been all about growth. It's all about how do we create new products? How do we expand the scope of what we can offer to businesses and, and help commerce on the internet? Right. And, just that drive is something that I see in a lot of people that work there because mm -hmm. there, if you have an idea and if you have a better way of doing something, you have the ability to kind of pitch it and, and actually get resources for it. And so I feel like build the idea or the, the, the fact of building something that's useful to people, which is what I did, you know, building a startup or when I'm coding is something that is applicable here too. Nice. Makes sense. Uh, okay, jumping on to hackathons. And this is something that Guang has told me about that you've won. And uh, you, you can fact check him here. He has, he, has give, he has told me that you've won, if not hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars in hackathons, which is... Millions? I think I said hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> you know, uh, I wouldn't go... I, that last part was not true. Uh, yeah. uh, regardless, it is pretty impressive. So... Uh, Tell us more. Like, how, how, how did this happen? Like, how, how did you become yeah. so good at doing hackathons? So this is, how, this is how this all started. I, when I was still in business, when I was still doing finance, uh, I was living in LA. I went to this thing called a hackathon. I didn't know what it was, but I, at USC, they were hosting this event. Uh, I thought it was interesting, something to do fun on the weekend. Uh, I went there and it was comical because there were 90 business people and 10 engineers at this hack at this event. <laughs> and so what happened was at the beginning, all everybody gets to pitch an idea. And so I pitched something and then it's a mad rush to get one of the engineers to get to, to come with you. <laughs> and we ended up, uh, and so it was, everybody was chasing these engineers. And then we, I ended up like not being able to get one. So we, I ended up on a team with all business people. And the thing that we submitted was this uh, PowerPoint presentation and because we couldn't code. And I just thought to myself, this is embarrassing. It's like terrible. Uh, there's got to be a way that I do not want to be in this position again. And so anyway, fast forward. And then once I learned how to code, I real I started going to these hackathons. It's almost like a, like, you know, redemption. Like I need to go back and actually participate. Like, I need to be able to build something. So I went to my first one and went there, coded something pitched it and I got second place at the thing. And I thought, wait, this is crazy. There's all these PhDs and there's all these like CS people here. What, what is, you know, I didn't win any money on that one. It was kind of a, a, just a free hackathon, but it occurred to me that there's something different about winning hackathons than what people think it is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people go into it thinking it's a software competition. And in reality, it's, it's a pitching competition. You have to pitch your idea and you have to pitch your prototype that you build, but you have to be able to talk about the business case and talk about why it's useful and why it actually would make an impact in the world if it existed, right? So it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, marketing. It's a lot of pitching. It's a lot of kind of the stuff I learned from business, actually. And so I got hooked on this. So as I was working... As a web developer, I would just go on weekends to these hackathons and eventually started flying to them. 
started winning like at one point 30 in a row where I was just like going, going, going. Wow. I had it down to a science on how to do it. And wait, wait, wait. Again, how, how, how much yeah. money have you won? Like we're going to put this like bolded in our, uh, in the title of this episode for them, you know, for that sweet SEO. So, you know, uh, I, I would, it's in the hundreds of thousands, but I would not, I would not. That uh, is crazy. That. Yeah. So I started going to these events and then I started, and then I started finding out that there was these big money hackathons. So in Vegas, for example, all these conferences they had, they had a fintech conference and attached to it was a hackathon because these companies wanted to show that they were developer friendly or whatever, right? And the money at these events was was huge. Like we're talking $20,000 prizes, wow. $50,000 prizes. And I thought this is really fun because it's you go there, you compete, you're coding. Yeah, I'm coding, which I love to do. And you're and I love competing. And, and the competition for me drives out like the, the will to win and the, and the will to really level up as fast as possible. And the other reason I started getting to hackathons was because I was a, an engineer and I felt like I want to learn all these new things and I can't really do it at my job. I'm doing web development, but I really want to try learning how to do an iOS app, but I don't have an external motivator. And so I would use these hackathons. I would always build iPhone apps at the hackathons because it would force me to learn how to do it because I wanted mm. to win. And so it became kind of this thing where anytime I wanted to learn something new in terms of dev, I would use the ha- the next hackathon to to kind of learn that thing because I know it'll force me to do it, and so that was that was like a really interesting thing. If you're if you're thinking if you're out there and you're thinking about like how do I how do I kind of experiment with different different skill sets or different languages, a hackathon's a great way to force you to do it, and it's can be really fun if you're doing it with a group of people that you like working with. So that's how I got into it. Oh, yeah. That is super impressive. Uh, how did you find these hackathons though? Man, it's a small world. Once you get into the hackathon world, <laughs> we all know each other. We, we really do all know each other. Uh, you, you actually do. I do go to a hackathon and then I meet the same people. And then they tell me about another one that's coming up in Missouri or something. And then we, I see them in Missouri. And it's like this, it's like this uh, small little crew of people that just uh, goes and competes against each other. And, and it's great. Wow. Um, and then you get on the newsletters and you get on things like DevPost, which they'll, they'll kind of keep telling you about new hackathons that are coming out. So yeah. let's say I'm an engineer out there and I want to start doing some of these. Uh, where, where could I go and learn more to find the first hackathon I could go to? So, you know, because of COVID, obviously, hackathons were the first hit. <laughs> they, they have not. So unfortunately, have, yes. Yeah. Um, they have not come back in person yet, but online hackathons have exploded. Uh, and so the place I would tell people to go, there's this site called DevPost, D-E-V-P-O-S-T. Hmm. They have tons of hackathons. There's right now, talk of the town is blockchain and crypto. And so yep. you go on there, there's some that are giving out multi-million dollar prizes <laughs> and you can do them right Sheesh. now from the comfort of your home. So uh, there's a bunch happening right now and you can go check it out. And, and, and I encourage anybody to, to kind of join a team. I'm happy to give you advice on how to win if, I, uh, if you need it. Oh, that's neat. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll later ask you about how people can reach you for sure. And I'm pretty damn sure after we put this in our title, there will be some incoming requests to Ashwin. <laughs> it's like, hey, Ashwin. From need me someone as well. <laughs> you know, please uh, don't forget yeah. your friends. All from Guam. Uh, you, you mentioned it's a small world. So now if you, and you mentioned at one point you won like 30 hackathons in a row. Uh, like th- mm-hmm. that's pretty crazy. So as people, I'm assuming people started noticing you that, hey, there's this guy named Ashwin. He comes to hackathons and wins them all. So when you would go, would people kind of try and get on your team knowing your track record? Yeah, uh, they would. Or 
Yeah, this is coming off as bragging. I'm, just, I'm not saying this to brag. I, I honestly, <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> the reason, really, the reason, the reason I really want to bring up the, the hackathons and the winning is because I think the interesting thing here is not that I'm great at this thing. It's more that I kind of hatched the hackathon, right? There's a, if you break it down, like I've been talking about, and I, I broke it down into what is this event? Like, what is, what is, how do you actually win? What are you graded on? And who are the actual judges? Now, here's a huge insight. Most of the judges were not technical at these hackathons. A lot of the judges were business people who were, you know, the head of that division, right? And so a lot of the other participants would go up there and they would pitch the technology and go into all like what they did on the back end, which the judges' eyes would gloss over because they're not even technical, right? So something as simple as who are the judges even? Like that's the first thing I ever do at a hackathon is look through, figure out who the judges are, what's their background, what do they care about, right? Because then you can start to see what is it, how am I going to resonate with them? Because they're the ones that are judging your project and that's how you win. And so I think what I read, the takeaway here is, it's just applying, again, the same thing about breaking something down and then like looking at the individual components and, and then seeing what, what happens if you think about things from first principles. And for me, winning the hackathons was, I'm more proud of the fact that I was able to kind of think about it that way. And it resulted in this, in, in winning, uh, implying that maybe maybe that was the right approach, but that's the takeaway I want people to get. Uh, and to your question, people would tr- I did a lot of these by myself, so like people would not try to get on my team. They would know I wasn't interested uh, <laughs> in them having on my team. Um, they would if there's a challenge category. If they knew that, they would try to fish to figure out which one I'm in, and then try to get change to something else uh, because a lot of these hackathons are like different tracks. So like, that's what they would do. Uh, but again. It, it was more. It was more about the the kind of approach I took that I think is interesting, and I, I think a yeah. lot of people can can learn from that. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Like I like you mentioned to break down what it was about, and then finding what's the recipe to actually win the hackathon. So pitching is something we want to get to, as you mentioned. Like that has been one of the key things, which is not the first thing people think about when it comes to hackathons. Uh, I, I think pitching is something that is not very intuitive to even many engineers at regular jobs because who thinks about pitching. Uh, before we get to that, uh, there is another aspect of also coming up with ideas. Like you mentioned, you went to different hackathons, somewhere about fintech. There might be others about different domains. I'm assuming you were coming up with new ideas as you go there to pitch. Uh, even though the pitch was really good, you needed the idea first. Uh, how did you go about coming up with different ideas at so many places? So I think this is this is where my experience running a startup or starting a company really helped, right? Because what you're trying to do, let's say a challenge. A lot of these hackathons will have a specific challenge. They'll say, we're Visa or MasterCard or whatever, and we're doing a fintech hackathon, and we have a challenge. We want you to make it easier for families to manage their finances. That's the challenge, right? And so the first step that I would do is what I would do if I was starting a company is I would figure out who the users of this product, the end product would be, and then try to talk to them and figure out what are the jobs to be done that they have, right? So like, I would, inter- I would actually interview people and do user interviews before the hackathon started uh, just to, because in hackathons, the way it works is you can't code until you get there, but you can do everything else. You'll learn about the challenge. You can design. You can do whatever you want except for code. So I would do user interviews with people, just a few, and say, you know, what is it? Like, for that one, I think I asked uh, my family, friends, parents, like, hey, how do you manage friend, uh, finances with your, with your family? What are the issues that you have, right? And try to figure out what, what is the thing that's missing? And that almost always will result in interesting ideas uh, because you'll organically just, they'll say something that just obviously, because you know how technology works, you can think this is something we can solve with a couple API calls. Like, and, and this is something that 
uh, could actually be of use. And so it becomes something you do in a hackathon, right? Mm. So I think that's the way that I, I generally go about doing anything, honestly, is like figuring out who the end user is and then seeing what it is that drives them and then work backwards to figure out what the idea is. And you, you also that way make sure that you have an idea that makes sense. Because a lot of times, you know, you go to these hackathons and it's very interesting to see, like, I really want to use some kind of crazy technology. So I want to kind of shoehorn an idea into that thing, right? Uh, um, uh, I was one way to escape the problem. That. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge problem. I mean, I think all engineers love technology. And so yeah. they, they want to really learn the new fancy shiny thing. But when you when you start with the user and you, and you kind of start with who would be actually use this product if it existed and go backwards, you almost always end up with something that's at least realistic. Yeah, I love that. It's yeah, so for both things, right? They're you're really taking like an audience kind of driven route, whether that's the um, like figuring out what's the idea, what's the product to actually build for, but also the um, like actually, you know, <laughs> digging up, I don't know, the, the history on the judges to kind of see like, you know, what I thought that was, uh, yeah. It seems, you know, I don't know, when I did it, it was like the first thing I did with my first hackathon. It wasn't like, hey, this seems like something that's a secret I found online. It just felt like so obvious that if the people if you win based on scores by these people, then it's those people that you need to be presenting to, not your the audience or anybody else. And so if you're going to be presenting those people, you need to know about those people. Like, what is it? Like, what do they care about? What do they know about? Are they technical? Like, it just seemed very obvious to me. So it's, and spoiler alert, like uh, when we talk about pitching, it's, I think this applies to everything. If you always think, what is the audience for whatever I'm doing? for this podcast or for a book or for a presentation at work or use for making a product. If you think about them first, you're almost always going to do make something more useful because you're, you're thinking of the end user of the end person. Why do you think not enough people do it? Like, especially engineers, like, is it because sort of the, you're doing things that don't scale. So like engineers, like, like, like just have a tendency not to do that. Or do you, um, there's less certainty. So, you know, what, what I found, in engineering and, and is, is that with, with engineering, I love, uh, to know what I need to build and then use my engineering hat to go break it down, look up the right tutorials. Like that's the part I usually love the most about hackathons because right. it's so certain. Uh, this is an uncertain path. You're basically talking to people, hoping to find something and it always works, but you always feel like, is it going to be a good use of my time? I don't really know what I'm going to get. It feels kind of amorphous and for things like that, I think design thinking is something that I've, I've kind of read about design thinking and, and I've used it extensively in basically everything I do. And it's been really helpful because in design thinking is all about how do you take something uncertain and then put some kind of structure around it, right? And how do you take user research, which is just a bunch of people talking to you, and then put some kind of structure to suss out what are the insights here that can help me build my product? Uh, and so that's been, that's been great. Where can I uh, learn more about this uh, design thinking stuff? Uh, it sounds like very useful. That yeah, so the learn. Stanford, the Stanford D School is, is kind of the gold standard of this. Of uh, they they teach uh, this is a design school at Stanford. They they kind of really originated a lot of the research in this, a lot of the books that have come out of it. I would just look for books on design thinking. There's a few that you'll find keep coming up over and over, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but they are okay. um, just like a single book, or, or or maybe on YouTube find a design thinking session that someone runs and yeah. see what it's like. Uh, that'll give you enough. That'll give you enough to get started. And to, for, for the engineers who are listening, that is, it's, I think of it as like, how do you apply software engineering-ish uh, structure to something completely uncertain? That's what design thinking is. It's, it's, if you look at it, it's breaking it down and using 
terms and uh, it, there's a process of, of steps that you take to go one by one in order to actually come up with something that's useful, which I thought is fascinating. Like they, they took something so uncertain and they put some kind of structure around it, which is amazing. Yeah, it's I find it really interesting because, um, you know, when you take something like data science, right, which I've had a little bit of experience with, it's sort of different, but then it's not as different, right? It's probabilistic. There are a lot of experiments you run. You don't know if it's going to succeed or not. But at the end of the day, it's still very quantitative versus for something like this, what you're describing, like talking to users and things, it's very like qualitative. It's in addition to the probabilistic nature of it, right? So um, that's super cool. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Thanks. Um, cool. So on the topic of pitching, so for the longest time, uh, the concept of like giving a pitch uh, seemed pretty foreign to me, um, and especially as an engineer. Uh, you know, the, the the show like Shark Tank, I think, will come up on my YouTube feed, and you know, you can tell like some people pitched it much better than others, but it still wasn't super relatable. Um, you know, especially if I'm not like trying to start a company and you know talk to investors, uh, it's like why would I care? Um, but having worked with you personally have really like changed my perception about pitching because I remember we would have these like one-on-ones we're talking about, you know, stuff uh, going on with the projects or maybe outside of work. And then every time I feel like I walk away being like, you know, you'll be telling me some idea. I'll be like, oh, wow, that sounds like a great idea. Like, oh, man, I'm like ready to go. Let's like, let's do it. Um, and I think it's like way after that, like after I, you know, try my, I guess, own luck at starting a company that I realized, you know, a lot of what you were doing is, you know, it's pitching, but not like, you know, like in the very formal sort of, uh, sense. And I just, that's kind of why I realized like, holy shit, like that's a very like valuable skill. Cause it's not just that, um, it's kind of like, right. Like it's, uh, influence without authority. And then you're like, you know, um, really like that energizing aspect i found it like um anyways tell us about pitching how did you get so good (laughs) well so first of all uh i think people confuse pitching with with selling so i want to be very clear like pitching so when you're selling when you're thinking about sales right there's some overlap but in selling you're you're trying to get someone to a transaction of some sort you're trying to get someone to sign the down the dotted line you're trying to make i think of pitching is you're just trying to convince someone of an idea like you're trying to convince someone of that something is important or that something is worth their time, just something to, to kind of convince them uh, to pay attention, right? And, and to think it's compelling. And the other the other thing I would say is you're always pitching. Everyone's pitching all the time. You pitched me on joining you for this podcast. You didn't call it that, right? <laughs> but you did something to the effect of this is a good use of your time. Would you please do this thing, right? And that that's a pitch. And everything that you do is, is you, and if you notice it, like anytime you need something from someone or you want something, from another human being or an organization, you're pitching, regardless if you call it that or not, in whatever format that takes, whether it's a presentation, it's an email, it's a call, it's taking someone out for, for dinner, whatever it is, right? Okay, so the reason I had to learn how to pitch is because I was doing these hackathons, as I was telling you, and I learned very quickly from the first one, it's about pitching. It's, it's a pitching competition, right? I and then being the software engineer, the nerd, I am, I'm not a nerd. All, engineers aren't nerds, but I consider myself a nerd. I was like, I'm going to get a book on pitching. I'm going to go figure it out. I'm going to break down pitches like, and figure out what makes a good pitch, right? What makes Steve Jobs so compelling when he talks about something? What makes, uh, you know, every, anyone you can think of, like, what, what is it about them? Can I break it down? I got this book. It's called How to Pitch Anything. It's, good. it's an awesome book. Uh, and it, it helped me a lot, actually, because the big theme that I've learned and which the book kind of talks about is that, which we've actually thought, talked about throughout this entire podcast, is about 
you have to understand who the audience is for your pitch and then tailor your pitch to them. Okay. So we, I alluded to in the hackathon case, if my pitch was to business people, then I need to think about what drives them or gets them excited or could convince them of something. It's not going to be the backend API libraries that I use. It's going to be, hey, this prototype, if it was out in the wild and your company used it, can result in potentially billions of dollars in revenue to your company. That's the pitch, right? But if I was presenting that same project to a complete, like a, a CS class, that may not resonate. What they care about is maybe I'll talk about why it was so complicated to build this thing, how this thing can scale out, what are the different tools we have to think about to make it extensible. So the first thing in all this is think about the audience and think about what, what makes it exciting for them, right? The second huge thing I learned, and this is from iteration, is that people's attention spans are so low <laughs> that... I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, Gong's already, already <laughs> lost me on this conversation. <laughs> people's so attention low. spans are so low that the best shot that you have is to pre-digest this information like baby food and give it to them. Like make it so easy for them to see the main concept of what you're trying to say that it's so obvious that they, they, they don't even have a chance for their eyes to gloss over. And one of the things that, that I do to do that is visual. So like whenever I give a presentation, whether it's at work or at a hackathon, I always think about what is the, the visual that's going to get the point of this app across easily. So here's an example for, for Tinder. Okay. Everybody knows Tinder and they know it's the famous thing about the swiping left and right. So if Tinder's whole pitch at a hackathon or something, when if no one had, it never existed before was we're going to help people find a match and we're going to make it easy as possible for them to do it. It's going to be like a game. So it's not going to be so daunting. Okay. That, that's cool. But if they showed in just 10 seconds, the swiping left and you see a photo, you swipe left, you see a photo you like, you swipe right, and then boom, it's a match. That 10 second visual is so much more compelling and gets the point across in such a, such a efficient way that they could have just done that. And then I, I, that is the thing that I would tell everybody is once you have the main idea of what you're trying to present in whatever format it is, figure out what is like the fastest and most compelling way to give it to them. And always, I always think visually, I think visuals are, animations are underrated. Uh, when you're giving presentations at work, I think animations are really important because animations are, can really help boil something down in a very simple way and show the flow of information. And I think that is, has helped me a lot in communicating something. Uh, when I look at a hackathon, when I plan out what I'm gonna build, first I do the user research, and then I think about, okay, before I do anything else, what is that final image or visual that I want them to see on before I even code or anything? I just think what would make this point obvious? So for an example, for that visa hackathon where it was, it was like, give your, how can we help family members manage their finances? To me, what I learned in my user research was uh, a dad or mom would have a young child and the, or not a young child, but a teenager or whatever who'd go spend money. And they kind of didn't know where they were spending that money and they couldn't really picture it. Like they couldn't see where it was and that made them uncomfortable and it kind of made them feel like, I don't know if I, if I trust my children, right? So for me, it was like an obvious thing would be because each transaction has a geolocation when it, when it gets swiped, have a map view. So, so the final image that I wanted to present in the hackathon was a map. I knew it. It would be a map where we would have pinpoints of all the transactions and then color coded by which family member did it, right? And so you can kind of see as a parent, okay, my, I know where they're spending their money. I feel safe. Uh, and, I, and I feel kind of like I have control over it, right? So that map, that map was the very first thing I thought of because it just made it so obvious the problem that I was solving. And then you work backwards, figure out the pitch, or, you know, figure out the actual script of what you're going to say, and then you break it down and kind of build the thing. And so 
anyway, long-winded. Think about the audience and, and think about what is the, the most basic piece of, uh, of your core proposition that you can, and then how can you display that in the most interesting way? And usually it's something visual. It's not usually with, with text. Um, what I'm getting out of this is, uh, it's like a very meta point. Um, I, I feel like I always thought about empathy as something that's more innate, like you have it or you don't. But then the way you're describing sort of knowing your audience, really kind of understanding, like in a very engineering-y kind of approach, almost kind of like, I think challenges like my perception of that, right? Like where you're very much like taking it like a very engineering approach of breaking things down and then really looking at sort of the cause effect. And then, you know, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. And empathy, like, you know, I wouldn't, I think of it more, I think of it, I think of it more like, I don't know someone's life experience and I need to know it in order to solve something. In this case, it might be, I need to create an app that does something for families. I don't have, I don't have my own family to that in kids that I can like know this information from. And so how else can I get that info? The fastest way I can get it is just ask people and then write it down. Right. And so, yes, it's empathy, but it's not like, it is kind of a logical approach to it where I just don't know the thing. And so in order to find the thing, I have to learn it. Like I have to, and the fastest way to learn it is just to ask people who have that issue. It's, yeah. It's the first order approximation to empathy. Is that, that'd be the fair way of uh, describing it. Yeah. I guess I am empathetic. I didn't. Thanks. Go on. Makes sense. Yeah, th- thanks for breaking that down for us. W- one question I have is, uh, as you've gotten so good at pitching, when you have to give a presentation or, uh, like you said, if you're writing an email or convincing someone to do something, that's whether we call it that or not, it's effectively a pitch. But when you're presenting something in person or, well, these days over a video call, do you practice before? in terms of the script that you would say with the elements that you described before? I practice like crazy. Like crazy. crazy. Here I like, thought you were just naturally <laughs> talented. Oh, man. No, no. I, uh, I practice. And everybody, you know, that I have heard in terms of people who do this for a living and Tony Robbins and all these people uh, practice like insane. And the only way to come off as not practice is you practice so much that it's, that it's, that it's uh, hard for you, it's like baked into your brain, right? Uh, very important. If you're ever, if you're ever going to give a presentation, if you're ever going to give a wedding speech, anything where you're actually going to be talking in front of people, I highly recommend you, you practice enough that you memorize it. And the reason is because one, you're not anxious um, when you're up there as much because you know, it's just baked into your brain. You kind of have it. But then second, once you have that hurdle cleared where you already know the information, that's when you can make things interesting because then you can, not feel so rehearsed because you can use hand gestures and you can use movements or you, you, you kind of can be more animated. You're just naturally more animated because you're just saying the thing as if it's a conversation. Uh, but yeah, I practice it a lot, a lot. And I, I don't think, I, I don't think there's any pride in, in when people say, Oh, I just winged it. And that like, that's what was amazing about it. Uh, I think really the pride would be, I, I really was intentional about this. I, I treated it with like, like uh, the importance that it has. And so I practiced it and I think back to what I was, you know, for, for engineers, I, here's one thing for engineers and it kind of breaks my heart because they have to, there's so much important work that we do at company, at the companies that we're at. And if we can only pitch it properly, we, we could, you know, get that promotion, get work on the projects that we want to work on. Like there's just so much 
return on that investment of learning how to do this that I really implore people to, to take this seriously. The next time you have to pitch anything, you don't have to call it a pitch, but maybe even you're doing your performance review for yourself and you, and you kind of want to pitch to your manager like, hey, here's the things that I did this quarter and here's why, here's the impact that I drove, right? Use the same approach. Think about what do they want to see? Like what would make them excited? And then, and then kind of see how the information that you're trying to give to them matches up with that. And so a good practical way of this is if you're building anything in, in software, if you're building, uh, you, if you built something over the last quarter, last half or whatever it is, and you want to talk about it, think about what the impact of that thing was, right? Like you made it so that three data scientists could spend six hours less a week uh, doing their tasks because of the, the, the setup that you did, the system that you set up. That's something that's important. And when you want to then pitch to the next job or you want to you know, try to level up in your career, those are the things that you point to because that shows that you're someone who can add a lot of value. And that's something that the hiring managers want to see. Oh, that, that's a really good point. And plus one to that, I actually would want to try it to what you mentioned earlier about design thinking because uh, this one aspect that you mentioned, well, if you're trying to pitch your impact or some people call it present your impact, you figure out exactly like reducing six hours worth of time for let's say six data scientists in a week, that's incredible. Many times when engineers think about what was the impact that you had and when there is not a clear line on a graph that shows you that this went up or down and this is something you have to think from an abstract perspective and then put structure around it, uh, it's not obvious for many people, at least in my experience. It wasn't obvious for me a few years back or until a few years back. Uh, I think what you're describing is like a combination of what you mentioned earlier, like design thinking where put structure around something that's ambiguous or abstract and then figure out how to present it. I think that combination makes it for a killer pitch. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. It's, uh, you put structure around it, think about what the audience wants and then that last step is really important though. You have to, pre you have to think about what's the kernel of it. Yeah. There's this, uh, the scene in Inception. Inception is my favorite movie. And uh, there's a scene where they're brainstorming and they're like, how do we get the, how do we plant this idea in this guy's head that he needs to forgive his father, right? Or something yeah. like he needs to move on. And Leo is like, we need something that's, we need to figure out what the most basic version of that is, right? The most basic, basic, basic version, which is my father doesn't want to be, doesn't want me to be like him. Like that's that basic version. And then we have to convince him of that one thing. And then yeah. that will eventually grow into, into him making that decision, right? So it, I always think of that movie when I, when I think of this. It's like, what's the most basic version of the idea that you want to do? And then see how you can make it obvious what that is, right? And in the, in the case of the engineer case where it's, you save these hours of time, the, the big idea might be I create a system that made my company more productive or made the data scientist's life easier, right? But the most basic idea is if you just sort a chart, a bar chart where it's like before the system, <laughs> after the system, average, uh, you know, time spent on this task by data scientists, and that was all you showed, that kind of, it's, you can't forget that. That's like, it's just such an obvious thing that someone would, would understand your concept more so than any kind of long-winded text that you can give. So think about that and then work backwards. I, I would always think about that before you start presentation. Like, what's that last thing going to be? And how do I get the data? Or how do I actually get what I need in order to show that thing? 
Um, very meta comment. It's like I, I think I'm still in the process of learning how to do this better uh, myself. But before, I used to think, you know, oh, the more information I can give, like more details I can add, I make it a stronger case. But you know, obviously that's not the case. And I think sort of the the missing information that I had was that. You know, when you give all the information right up front to the other person, you're getting them to do the work of processing it, right? Versus you have all these information. Yes, that's step one. But if you are the person that's actually aggregating and you know assimilating all these things into a very clear concept, like you're doing the work for them, so that's sort of the value add. I mean, the downside is that it takes work, right? Like it's not easy. It's gonna take you like days to to really think of something. But um, I think yeah. when I started thinking about it like that, it made me. Feel a lot better about like oh yeah like this is absolutely the productive or right thing to do. So. Yeah, and you're right. It takes a lot more work. I spend a lot of time on these presentations. None of this uh, like if you actually saw it, if you saw the presentation, you'd think okay, he's this is the natural thing. I actually spend an inordinate amount of time uh, making the visuals, making the animations. If I'm if I'm pitching something to you know internally to company, practicing way more than maybe the average person. But that's also because I enjoy it. Like, and I love kind mm-hmm. of kind of delivering this one thing going to what you said so that book how to pitch anything one of the really cool visuals in that book it's kind of meta the thing that it got me was he he talks about how when the person creating a presentation or a pitch or whatever information is thinking with their kind of most evolved brain right like the the kind of processing analytical brain and then the person who's receiving it is using the reptile brain and their amygdala <laughs> like they're, they're the person receiving it is just has so many other things to think about and is is kind of like you treat him like you treat that as you need to uh, cater to that that version of the brain, right? And most people don't. Most people think that you writing the presentation or creating the slides is is how the audience is going to also be on the same wavelength and wanting to process and analyze that information. It's almost never the case. It's almost always they want to be told something in the most obvious, obvious, obvious way and. It's your job to pre-digest it and give it to them. That, that's how you make a good presentation. I'm not as special as I think. <laughs> um, uh, b- before we jump off on this, you mentioned uh, that you practice a lot. What does practice look like for you when you're doing a presentation? It's actually pretty, it's a messy process. Like what I do usually is I will, let's, uh, let's take an example of maybe a hackathon pitch, right? Like I have a pitch that I'm going to do at a hackathon and that means I have three minutes or whatever on stage to present this thing. What I like to do always is write out the pitch before I do anything. So before I even start to code, uh, the very first thing I'll do is let's just write out the draft, at least, of the pitch of like, what am I actually going to say? What are the words I'm going to say? And then try to say it and just like read through it, right? And then think, okay, is this hitting? Is this actually hitting the kind of points that I wanted to hit? If the core thing I want to get across is blank, right? Like it's going to help families manage their finances because of this geography thing, then is my pitch actually hitting that, right? Is it, is it going to be clear to the audience like that that is the takeaway? And yet this, you know, it comes with practice where you kind of can get in the audience's shoes a bit and get into that reptile brain, right? And pretend that, pretend you're listening to it. And, and if I was in that headspace, like, do I actually get it? And then once I once it seems like it's morphing to something that that, that is what I want, uh, practicing, honestly, is just what you think it is. I'm, I'm in front of a mirror and I'm doing the thing again and again and again. I'm just saying it out loud memorizing it and then the first time i do it i'm looking at the paper and i'm looking and i'm kind of like barely being able to do anything outside of that the next time i do it i can memorize a little you know a little bit more is memorized and then i can start using my hands and kind of doing kind of doing things that uh make me more animated and make me kind of emphasize points when i'm presenting and i just keep doing it and doing it until it's time to do the pitch and at that point 
I'm so sick of it almost. Like I'm, I've done it so much that I can, I can immediately snap to any part of that pitch whenever I need to. And then I'll go on stage and then, and then I'll do it. And then I forget everything right after I walk off. <laughs> it's now just imagining like the nights before our one-on-ones, you're just like looking into the mirror and then talking about the, uh, the things that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I never practice for our one-on-ones. <laughs> Feelings are hurt. Those are all improvised. <laughs> um, cool, yeah. Uh, Ranek, do you have anything else before we uh, dive into the startups? No, or, go ahead. Cool, yeah. So, you know, the, the last, I guess, topic. Um, so... You know, we, we have to stay on brand with the misadventures, you know, aspect. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, wow, this sounds like I'm going to cut this part out of the podcast. You know, I feel like I sound like a dick right now, but maybe that's also on brand. Anyways, so, yeah, tell us about the uh, the, the, the YC startup experience. Um, that's pretty cool, especially, I guess, for someone who, you know, might not like intent on actually starting a company one day. But, you know, he's kind of curious, um, you know, what it is and such. Yeah. I don't. So this misadventures. What what is the, <laughs> what what is what does that mean? I I was implying because you know it didn't work out. So that's the. Oh okay okay. <laughs> that's okay. why I was wow. doing. The, yeah, that was a dick move on my end. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah 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 yeah. Um, no, it worked. It, it worked out in the sense that I got a lot out of it, which is I guess the question you're asking, right? Um, yes. So that's the definitely that's what I was going for. Yep yep. yep. Yeah 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 yeah. Okay, so you think about. I, basically, it's like if you, the way I think about startups is you want to solve a problem and you want to do it in a new way that's better. And if you do it correct, if, you, if you're right about the way you're doing it and you're right about the problem you're solving and you're right that people actually want the thing that you're making, you will get all the things that the press thinks about startups. You'll get funded for your company. You will make money. You will maybe get rich. You will, you know, grow a team. You'll do all the stuff that you think of a startup founder does, right? But the core part of it, the really thing it comes down to is are you solving a real problem? Um, so, and the reason I bring this up is because, and also the reason you can see why I emphasize so much about talking to users and talking and, and kind of starting backwards, right. Is that in, in YC, YC's kind of mantra is make something people want. That's their, that's their mantra because, and there's a lot that goes into that sentence, but the real reason they kind of made that their, their stake in the ground is they found that the number one indicator of sort of failure is that someone makes something that they think people want that people don't want. Uh, that is the essence of all failure of startup, right? Of course there's execution and everything, but it's, that is kind of the thing to start with. And so YC, the experience is, you know, you get in, if you get into YC, the whole experience of YC is just proving with your startup that you're making something that people want. And if you prove it using some kind of the metrics that, that we know from Silicon Valley, like revenue or usage of your product or whatever it is, then you can raise money to prove even more out of it, right? Raise money, hire a team, and then prove it even further. Do, do more people want what you're making? And if you made it better, does that expand the type of people that can use your thing, right? That's all it is. It's, it's basically that. And so it's really kind of on theme with all the other stuff we've been talking about. Uh, starting a company is, it's like, break, it's like breaking things down on steroids, right? You're, you're constantly breaking things down. You constantly have something that you need to get done and you don't know how to do it because you've never done that one thing before and you don't have time to go look it up and research everything. So you have to learn very quickly, what's the 80-20 here? What do I need to do uh, to get this thing done? What's the fastest way for me to do it? And, and then let me do the thing. If you need to do payroll, what's the fastest way? I don't know how taxes work. Okay, this company, here's a document I can read real quick that'll give me at least enough of me to, to kind of get the thing done and let's keep going, right? Uh, 
that's that's what starting a company generally is. YC, YC is an accelerator. And so YC will take a bunch of companies. This last batch had 400 companies that went through at the same time in a cohort and all and accelerate you through a 12 week process where they work with you and they, they kind of assign you a group partner from YC to work with you and advise you to as quickly as possible prove out the very first uh to, to de-risk one of the very first assumptions of whatever that you have for your company. It could be different for every company that goes through. In my company, in my batch, we were making an AI accounting company, right? So for us, the the thing to prove out was would people actually pay knowing that there wasn't a human that would be doing their taxes? That was that was the biggest risk, right? So that's what we spent a lot of time doing is trying to get people to pay for our product. For There was another company in my batch. They were making a self-driving truck. And so... There, every week on the weekly updates, they would come in. I would come in and say, hey, we got you know 10 new paying customers. <laughs> they would come in and say, we got the wheel to turn left. And, and it was like the update and everybody would clap and it would be this standing ovation and everyone would hug. And it was this amazing feeling. But that's the thing, right? It's like, uh, it's like breaking down what is the biggest risk for your company and then attacking that one thing and nothing else. And that's the big discipline that, that founders need to have. So one thing... F- um which I think, if I think about engineering in general, uh, we were discussing this earlier too, like engineers like determinism or ambiguity. Uh, as a startup founder, you mentioned that there are so many things you just don't know and you're breaking things down on steroids. When you need to learn something new, you obviously have limited time. So at what point do you decide or how do you decide this is good enough for me to know to solve this problem and move on? Whereas many times for engineers, like I need to break this thing down enough for me to understand all of it. And then I'm going to do the thing that I need to do. Uh, I think it takes practice to get comfortable with not knowing the perfect way to do something, but good enough. And then moving on. I think many times, and this this applies to not just startups, I think also many engineering trade-offs that we make where we let perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, but in startups, it's a lot more important. It's the business that's at stake if you make that mistake as the founder of the company. So how did you balance it out or how do you think about that? I mean, I had a tough time. Like I, I am a perfectionist. As much as I keep talking about changing and, and moving and uh, you know moving to new domains, I would describe myself as a perfectionist. So I'm always constantly at that battle of, I really want to make this thing better. And I know I can if I have yes. more time. And now I have to let it go and move on, even though it's not as perfect as I can make it. Uh, it kills me. But it's what I've learned over the years is it's it's uh, the only way you're going to move faster and the only way you're actually going to do the thing is to just learn that it's never going to be perfect and instead focus on if you didn't spend that much time perfecting it or in your, in the example that you gave, if you didn't spend as much time learning every concept of something before you, you were like, okay, I'm, I've grokked it, then it's if you didn't spend that much time, then you can learn something else at 80 to up to 80% in that time. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden now you can do something you couldn't have done before mm-hmm. versus spending all that time kind of, uh, kind of researching that one thing. It's a really tough thing to know. When is it, when do I know enough? Yes. Right. Uh, it's trial and error. Honestly, <laughs> I think as an engineer, you, 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 uh, you, oh, so I guess hackathons also really trained me in this because in a hackathon, you just don't have time. Hackathons for people that don't know, hackathons are basically 24 hour competitions like you go there on saturday morning you stay up all night it's a hacking marathon that's what it's called that and then the next morning on sunday you have to at that point you have to build a prototype and you have to you have to pitch it the thing right uh so 
you have zero, you just don't have time to kind of learn everything that you need to learn. And so what ends up happening is you have to get, let go of the perfectionism and just, and just be like, I know enough to get the thing, get this one thing done, uh, which I needed to get done. Now let's move on to the next thing. And you know, repeat that process over and over. And none of it would be as good as if you had like dug into every single concept, but the whole of it, the sum of it is that you have a working, you have a prototype, you have something that actually kind of works end to end. Right. So mm-hmm. I would trust your intuition. If I think engineers, we actually do do this all the time where we can't learn everything about a certain new technology or a new database or a new paradigm, but we need to know enough to make our, do something for our job or solve this one problem. And we do kind of have this internal built-in thing of being like, okay, I know I could learn more if I got a textbooks on this thing or took a tutorial, took a class, but I kind of don't have time to do that. So I just have to to, to kind of take this copy paste and stack overflow code and just accept that this is <laughs> accept that I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it works uh, yes. and just move on. Uh, right? Yeah. It's like, well, great, uh, good engineers, coffee, great engineers, paste, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, exactly. uh, this, this reminds me of a conversation I was having with my wife and it was some completely unrelated actually, but something around this came up and the way she put it was uh, like, even with engineers, I think with people in general, like uh, builders versus optimizers. Uh, and sometimes it's more of a personality type too, where some people really like to optimize something out of, uh, of, out of a system. And for them, it's much harder to let go. And then it's a, it's a muscle that you build to decide when to let go. And then on the different side, there are builders who are who get good at knowing enough to then move on and build forward. Uh, do you think for you it took a lot of building that muscle through iterations, uh, through these hackathons and other experiences? I don't, you know, it's funny. It's like, I, I really don't think I am a builder. I think I'm an optimizer <laughs> who's just unfortunately placed in a situation where I can't optimize. It's a constant, it's a constant struggle. Like, I, I don't want anyone to hear this and think that this is easy. Like, this is like my natural thing. I actually feel like I'm an optimizer and a perfectionist. Mm. And so... The thing that makes me really, oh, I always get frustrated at hackathons and I always, I'm a complete mess. If you actually saw me, I'm not the most, uh, I'm kind of prickly because I keep wishing I had, I could like make this thing better, right? I can make the design more pixel perfect. I wish I could, I really always wish I could refactor this code right now and, and, and make it modularize and, uh, and it just, you know, eats at me. So in a meta way to answer your question, I don't think that I became a builder. I think I just, let me put it this way. I, I think I, I got more excited about the thing that I, the, the next level, the next step, right? If I could take this thing to the next step, meaning it's not perfect in the step zero, but if it's, I can at least get to step one at 80%, that means I can get to step two faster. And, and that step 10, which I think is really exciting, I'm going to get there, right? So I, I think of it more like, unfortunately, I have to move on kind of thing. It's always like a disappointing feeling, but it's always also a feeling towards growth, right? And so, um, yeah, it, don't, don't worry if you think of yourself as an optimizer, like, oh, that means I'm never going to be able to do something uncertain, like, you know, building a company. Most of these software, most of these founders are those people. The, the only difference is they kind of realize that building, you know, solving the problem for their users is just way more important. And so they're just going to have to bite the bullet and not be an expert in the thing. That's the whole job of a startup founder is to not be an expert in anything and just be very, very quick at getting to 60% and then figuring out how do you hire or, or build, bring in talent. That's way better. Uh, so you always feel like the dumbest person in the room, which, you know, there's a trope that that's means you're in a good situation. If you are, if you're always the dumbest person in the room, because you have smarter people around you, but, uh, 
but yeah, I would I would say just get more. This is about the risk and the reward thing too, right? Get more excited about the reward. If you get really pumped about where about the project that you could build or the outcome, or, or maybe not the outcome, but the end result, and you get so excited about it, you're gonna want it so badly, or you're gonna want to get there faster. And so be, the only way to do that is to let go of your optimizations and, and just kind of move. Hmm. I think that that's the way I think about it. Nice, nice. Um, I feel like that's a pretty good place to stop. I had actually so many other questions about, you know, going through YC, about the startup school that, you know, you like literally sell like thousands of like pitches. Um, super interesting. And then like even like things like angel investing. But um, we, uh, we need to have you back for another episode. We definitely need round two here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be back, man. This is awesome. This is fun. Uh, this has been great. So any, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners um, before we call it? No, you know, I would just say, and you said a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of them are engineers and, and kind of, uh, you know, been working for a little while. I'd say, you know, don't have, I would have some confidence. I think learning to build software is, is an extremely complicated thing. Uh, and, and the skills that you learned from doing it, you have, you've by definition have to learn how to learn quickly. You know how to break things down into small pieces. Uh, you know how to build things back up and you know how to add value and think about scalability, all the skills that we kind of think are just part of our job are the same exact skills that will allow you to kind of do other things in life. And if you apply those things, which you already have an internal intuition on because of, because of your career, you're, you're going to be able to succeed. Just, just keep, keep with your guns. Don't kind of, for example, with angel investing or anything else, you know, break it down into pieces and don't get scared because it's something you don't know yet. Just, just do exactly what you've been doing with your, with your software. Just break it down, look up what you need to look up. When you feel like it's good enough, move on to the next thing. And that's, uh, that's how I would learn anything. Such wisdom. Much wow. Awesome. <laughs> this was awesome. By the way, we should add it. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Because you, you did mention that you, you, you're open to helping people out if possible. <laughs> if time permits. Get ready for the emails. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could, you can tweet at me. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Schwinda, S-H-W-I-N-D-A. Well, that, that, that's a cool yeah. name. Maybe we could learn more about that next time. But yes, we'll add it to our show notes for sure. Um, once again, thank you so much, Ashwin. This was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Ashwin. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.